Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Happy 4th of July, Tyler. It is Independence Day. Happy 4th of July week. It will be Independence Day soon. It will. But let's get the celebration going. We are going to have a special guest today to talk to us about the birth of the U.S. Navy and talk about naval history um, throughout Really, beginning in the Revolutionary War in the late 1700s, all the way up, we want to go all the way up to World War II. Yeah, we do. We really do. And all the cool, I mean, we're going to be talking about weapon systems, ships, big battleships, destroyers, naval technology, torpedoes. Yeah, the whole, yeah. It's a, it's, this is a fun show. I mean, it is the Revolutionary War, y'all, and that's what we're celebrating on the 4th of July. And that means we're talking about armaments and we're talking about the, na- the role of the Navy in that period and, and the role of uh, the Navy in the power of the United States over time. Well, Peter, we know when we have a really good thing. And learning about uh, the history of the United States uh, Navy and the U- U.S. naval power is something that is just darn interesting and fun to learn about. So, for Independence Day week, this week, we are preparing a two-parter, a two-parter ASP. So, this is part one here, ladies and gentlemen. Part one starts now. Uh, and part two will come out on the 4th of July. So you will have an extra little bit of podcasting content there uh, for the 4th of July weekend. Uh, and man, we are really excited about it. We have from from London, England. Uh, he goes by Drock, and it is short for Drakenefell. And he is the proprietor, owner, and uh, well, distributor of a great YouTube channel. That is known around the world called Drakenefell, and I'm going to spell it. So if you guys are listening to this and have a chance to uh, tap this into your Google search, it's D-R-A-C-H-I-N-I-F-E-L. We did a show last year, Dr. Bill Fowler, uh, University of Rhode Island, uh, naval historian, all about, you know, we talked about John Paul Jones, but what what we're doing this year... To celebrate Independence Day and really this week of celebration on ASPN, we are going to look at the kind of this the evolution, the history of the U.S. Navy from being a little podunk colonial, right? You know, power barely a power upstart, upstart, yeah, all the way up through uh, a to, to be a global power. Yeah, and if you think about the United States and how we started with basically next to nothing and somehow scrambled into independence, uh, which is what we celebrate on the 4th. But the evolution of the United States as world power is very much tied to our uh, to our Navy. And so that's why I'm really interested in talking to Drock about that. Uh, he's an expert, unbelievably self-taught naval historian. If you look at his channel on YouTube, everything you want to know about naval ships going back to the Greeks and the origin of naval artillery with slingshots. I mean, it's just incredible, this guy. I'm looking forward to it. I'm yeah, a huge fan. Yeah. I've, I've watched a lot of his stuff. Okay, we'll get into it in a second. Let's first have a word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by 
LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at coastaltransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the thedunesciencegroup.com. Well, Drock, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, and thank you very much for taking time out to uh, talk to our listeners around the world. Thank you very much for having me. It uh, sounds like it should be a fun discussion. Well, I hope we did justice to describing what you do. Uh, do you, uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about what, uh, what, what sparked your interest in, in naval history and uh, how long have you been at this subject? Um, so I've told this story a few times on my YouTube channel. The, original spark of interest for me for naval history was when i was four years old um back in at the turn of the 80s turning into the 90s and my grandmother decided that we were going to have a day out saturday out uh, down at the seaside except that she'd already cottoned on to the idea that i was quite into history so instead of going down to the beach and uh, staying very very far away from the water because well it's the uk the water's freezing at the best of times um she decided we're going to take the train down to portsmouth which is the historic home of the royal navy and so little four-year-old me on a very unusually sunny day for the uk um was walked into portsmouth historic dockyard and I can still, to this day, remember my first sight of Nelson's flagship HMS Victory coming around the corner. Wow. Um, at the time, still fitted with all its full masts, yards, spars, and rigging. Um, at the moment, not quite, not quite so much while they're doing some conservation work. Uh, but it was an absolutely glorious sight. And just behind it, on the sort of the active dockyard, if, if you like, was HMS Ark Royal which at the time was the Royal Navy's current flagship. And yeah, from, from that point on, I was pretty much hooked. I've maintained an interest in most forms of uh, military history uh, and some linguistic history since then. But naval history has always been, much, from that moment on, was my primary historical fascination, if you like. So when you get together at a family gathering, uh, do you thank your grandmother for that trip? Because it sounds like it's been a lifelong joy for you to become an expert in this topic yeah fortunately fortunately for me my grandparents live uh, just a few miles away from from where i 
grew up um a little bit further away from from where i live now but still um and that was that would be the first of many visits because <laughs> we we would go down to the dockyard maybe three or four times a year and at the time uh, it was there was victory there was warrior which i got to see the second time around um and the mary rose the henry the eighth's old flagship mm. back when that was still being conserved you couldn't really see much then it was basically a glorified hangar warehouse with a lot of mist because they were spraying it with glycol to preserve mm. it huh. but it is very interesting because then it meant that sort of two three visits a year you saw the the whole thing evolve so there was conservation efforts on victory uh, mary rose eventually got its own museum uh, when they finished the restoration work which was really interesting and we we discovered all other bits of the um of the dockyard including a bit, section over in gosport but we'd once my once my grandmother realized that this was really what i was into we would also go to other um historic dockyard so we went to chatham dockyard we went to see the ss great britain over in bristol wow. uh, basically if there was anything naval related that was accessible via a day trip in the uk which to be fair is about two-thirds of the country right. um then then we we'd go and see it and as i grew up obviously um then obviously getting a job and so forth being able to earn my own money um all of a sudden all new interesting avenues of research opened up because it wasn't just what i could borrow in high school library or the the, the local county library or even right. the university library later on it was i could go out and find interesting reference books and purchase them read them etc well, sounds like a great and and a, a great hobby and was uh, does is Sir Francis Drake's ship anywhere? Is did was that preserved anywhere? The great there's admiral a of it the wasn't preserved, but era? there's a replica of it. The re there's a replica of the Golden Hind right. in London, right near HMS Belfast, uh, the cruiser, which is obviously near Tower Bridge, which was another another uh, frequent place to visit. HMS Belfast being the easiest one to get to, based in South London. And Sir Francis Drake led uh, the English fleet against the Spanish Armada in 15, what, 32, something like that? Um, I think a bit, a bit later, later than the 1580s, late, I think. 1580s. Um, yeah, it's, it, 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 the, the date doesn't doesn't immediately spring to mind, but I'm pretty sure it's the late 1500s. Uh, but yeah, but yeah, he, he, he did all sorts of things. I mean, the Golden Hind specifically took drake around the world the first right. round the world voyage voyage by an englishman and i think the first round the world voyage where the captain actually made it all the way around because of course uh, francis magellan famously came a cropper um in the far east didn't and uh, although the ship made it all the way he didn't right now i i know that you are of course are quite uh experienced and in depth as an expert on the on the British Navy and uh, but I, do, I know you're not limited to that uh, looking at your <laughs> channel uh, anywhere in the world so I wanted to just the first question is could you uh, describe for our listeners uh, the birth of the United States Navy or the state of the United States Navy if it can be even called that hmm. during the Revolutionary War can you put the US Navy in context uh, is an international force yes so the, the the history of the U.S. Navy, well, for for a lot of its, I say probably the first half of its existence, but especially around its origin, is one of ups and downs. So, obviously, they're not planning for a navy. It's kind of thrust upon them by the well, if you want to call it American War of Independence, American Revolution, um, 
uh, however you want to label it, but they suddenly uh, what, found what themselves in a call position. It? What do you guys call it? We, we tend to call the, it the American up, Revolution. Yeah. Um, it, it tends to get paired quite a lot with the French Revolution, which was obviously a few years later. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Of course they, it is. They, they, some of the older, the older textbooks uprising. I've managed to find still call it the American Rebellion, but I right. don't think I've seen that in anything post about the 1950s. <laughs> So uh, keep going. So we, we didn't have much of a Navy, yeah, keep, I understand. Keep, keep telling us the story about the Revolutionary yeah. War. So, so we've got the, you've got the Continental Navy, which is officially, it's the bit that has continuity with the later U.S. Navy. And you'll see why I say continuity rather than directly ancestral in a minute. Um, and they start off effectively grabbing anything that floats that will vaguely serve their purposes because they've suddenly rebelled against the biggest naval power on the planet at the time and at the start of the revolutionary war they don't have this recognition or help from france which is kind of the second naval power which they would get later on so they start off with a, a range of small vessels um some of them with slightly odd names you the very first vessel of the continental navy is the alfred um Sorry, let me just put that to silent. Just doesn't um, and, doesn't convey a lot of power as a as a naval ship name, does it? No, <laughs> Alfred. No, uh, just it doesn't scare and, you. Uh, yeah, and there's there's a few there's a few they're named after famous explorers. So you've got Columbia, Columbus, Andrew Doria, Cabo, mm. um, the rather again uninspiringly named Fly. Um, but yeah. also a couple of uh, names that a lot of your listeners will recognize wasp and hornet are two of the earliest uh, continental navy vessels they also go for 13 frigates and they're not nowhere near as famous as the later six frigates but the the 13 frigates they're also relatively small um they're what you'd probably classify as a sixth rate maybe one or two fifth rates floating around in there not the world's most inspiring levels of armament 12 pounders uh mostly on on the frigates whereas uh, most of their direct sort of full-on naval competitors are mounting 18s uh, and me, again there's a, there's a few let me, let me famous just, names in there but okay hmm. let me let me just uh, you said fifth rate a couple of them were fifth rate a couple, yeah. uh, mostly sixth rate could you explain yes. that scale uh, a little bit yeah, sure. So um, in the age of sail, different navies have different rating systems, but the Royal Navy's one is the one that seems to have stuck. And ships were rated for combat. So effectively, if a ship had a rating, it had some role in the line of battle and in general naval service. Below that, you had things like brigs and sloops and corvettes and all sorts of odd designations, depending on how you, the particular navy in question. But the, the frigates were generally you would have fifth and sixth rate frigates so first rate was your 100 plus gun ship of the line this would be a flagship that even the biggest navies would usually only have half a dozen or so and they'd be the first things that get put into storage in times of peace because they're incredibly expensive to maintain um, you've then got second rates which are kind of 85 90 gun ish up to 100 guns and they're very uncommon by this point because they're practically as expensive to maintain as a first rate, but not quite as powerful. The yeah, if you're going to go there, just go all the way. Yeah, just go big. Yeah. 
Go big, the baby. The third rate is the is the workhorse of the fleet. Although at the time of the American War of Independence, it kind of is sharing that a little bit with the fourth rate. So there's a bit of a transition. So the the third rate is seventy to eighty guns, and it's two decks. The first and second rates have three full gun decks. Um, and so the, the the third rate is the seventy four in the British uh, fleet. In the French, they're usually eight, eighty gunships. These are kind of your workhorse capital ships. They make up the majority of the battle line. And the fourth rate is, again, in British service, usually a 64-gunner. So that's 50 to... You're usually 50 to 70 guns would be a fourth rate. And they're kind of a holdover from an earlier period when that was a viable capital ship. By the late 1700s, they're beginning to come out of the... uh, out of the battle line because they're just... they're not quite big enough they're still two deckers, but if you're going to take a 64 up against a, a first rate or even a 74, they're probably going to lose because it's not just about the numbers of guns. It's also about the weight of guns and the, the smaller 64s generally can't carry a main deck battery of 32 pounder guns, which is what pretty much everything else does. Um, you then go down to fifth rates, which are 30 to 40 gunships and these are your your bigger frigates generally although um by the time we get to the war of 1812 we'll see a bit of a uh sort of break with tradition in the u.s navy there but the the fifth rate are your heavy frigate and then 20 to 30 guns is your sixth rates which are your lighter frigates and then below 20 guns they're unrated they just don't count (laughs) yeah it's just well we have them it's called the pea shooter i think is the term wasn't it uh yeah they're used as messenger boats and sort of commerce in law enforcement uh occasionally oppressing random natives who don't have gunpowder but that's that's basically as far as those small ships utility really extends so uh the the, the fifth and sixth rates will be used as scouts in the line of battle um, they usually won't get engaged in the main fight itself, but they also have a good and important secondary role in um, towing disabled line ships out of battle if they get uh, crippled, if their masts and spars go down, and, of course, uh, fighting other frigates in commerce protection, commerce raiding, that kind of thing. So if if you're uh, thinking strategically and you're the... Uh... America, the the fledgling American Navy, and all you've got mm-hmm. are these little, little one decker, uh, fifth. Would you say fifth or, or sixth? Yeah. Right. So the the establishment that Congress calls for is five thirty two gunners, which would be the fifth rates, um, five twenty eight gunners, and three twenty four gunners. So the majority of them are sixth rates, although they're. M- in terms of actual practical guns, uh, as I say, a lot of them they're, they're armed with twelve pounders, which put them at the lower end of the spectrum. So, even what's if the strategy? The guns. How are you? I mean, how are they thinking that this is going to be an effective use of yeah. resources? Doesn't sound like a good against, idea. Going up against mm. like a real navy, like a, an established naval power. Mm. So, the one thing they do know at this point is that Britain is uh, about. 50 to 60 years into uh, on again, off again series of wars with almost everybody in Europe, um, <laughs> which is kind of a running theme for Britain pretty much from 1600 through to about 1950. Uh, and in this particular case, the, the British have 
just come out of a series of Anglo-Dutch wars. They've fought the French several times. They've fought the Spanish several times. They've fought various combinations of Dutch, French, and Spanish several times. And so although they have a large fleet, the Americans are very aware of the fact that the British cannot deploy the vast majority of this fleet to their coast. Now, if they do, they realize that actually this is going to end very badly. But for the minute, most of what's off the American coast is Royal Navy frigates and unrated vessels, because that's all they thought they needed, at which point some frigates would be really useful in standing off Royal Navy blockades from ports, because a, a brig with half a dozen guns can stop a merchant ship quite easily so it's very cheap to blockade the american ports at the mm. beginning of the revolutionary war mm. but if there's a, a fifth rate or sixth rate frigate sitting in that port the, the only thing that you're going to achieve by putting the little sort of half dozen or dozen gun brig or sloop off the port is you're just going to add to the u.s navy because it'll be a free free capture got it did the united states navy success why well, don't even the continental navy is what it was called mm. uh and i understand a lot of the the naval forces in the United States were organized as militias under state command, uh, but that George Washington was the named head, I think, of the Continental Navy as well, as the land forces of the Continental Army. Uh, mm -hmm. Did we successfully compete with any uh, British ship during the Revolution? Did we sink anything? How did we do? They they you... did. They, there were a number of fights. Um, quite a number of ships. Un, uh, well, as, fortunately, if you're the British, unfortunately, so much if you're the Americans were captured. So, for example, USS Hancock is captured by the wonderfully named HMS Rainbow. Um, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, the, 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 when you get down to the the low, the smaller scale, you come across some very weird ship names in the Royal Navy. Um, there's uh, a few of them are burnt to prevent capture at mm. various points. Uh, USS Providence is actually captured by the British and taking it into uh, into repair uh, into the Royal Navy as a, as a ship. The same thing mm. with USS Virginia. So yeah, uh, most of those the original thirteen frigates don't have particularly happy lives, um, and to be honest, neither do, neither do most of the other um, very early ships. Right. Unfortunately, because what what effectively happens in in naval terms in the American Revolutionary War is you have this opening phase where the the US needs they need ships to try and keep the, the coast at least somewhat clear and keep coastal trade going because unlike these days where America is sort of a, a country that spans a continent, in those days it's very much the thirteen colonies on the east coast there's not that many roads there's no railroads at all and so the vast majority of heavy goods movement shipping communications is done by coastal sea seagoing craft and so if the british can lock that down easily you basically split the 13 colonies up into 13 individual areas which you can pick off at will so keeping those lines at least somewhat open is vital you then have a sort of a middle phase which is the the British start to realize, hang on a minute, this is actually, this is annoying. So we're going to send more ships in. And this sort of 1777, 1778 period is where a lot of the Continental Navy 
ends up being burnt or captured and then you have the last period of the at least for the revolutionary war of the naval element which is when the french get involved and then eventually the spanish get involved although they're not as involved directly off the u.s coast and now all of a sudden the royal navy has to deal with incoming french ships that are a match for their for their own and you end up with all sorts of battles and and such like that are going on and it's those battles that in a lot of ways affect the the overall outcome of the american revolutionary war because for example that's sort of what's seen as the, the decisive battle uh the surrender of cornwallis at yorktown the british have a fleet which obviously has guns it has marines and they're bringing supplies and reinforcements to him and if that had reached him, they probably could have withstood the, the the siege of Yorktown and perhaps history would have been very different. But the French, and at this point the French are still under uh, the royalist command, they engage the British fleet in the Battle of Chesapeake Bay. It's not particularly decisive one way or the other, but the British fleet is is forced to withdraw and because it's forced to withdraw and sort of come back for another try later during that period while it's regrouping yorktown happens and and that that's basically it for uh british land power in the continental united states wow. so drac tell us a little bit about what how a naval engagement in that period would run i mean i, I realize that at the uh the lower, what are they, not classes, tiers? Rates, mm -hmm. fifth rates, rate, sixth rate. Right, 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 rates. right. At the lower rates, uh, you know, we're not talking, but like if a, if a couple, if a couple of these big ships, I mean, like as you say, huge investment, lots of money, are they defensively minded? Are they like they trying to not, uh, you know, scuff up the paint or are they getting in there? And, and, you know, I'm just curious to know what an engagement would yeah, look like. Yeah, what were like. the tactics yeah. of that? Right. So when, when you're in a, an age of sale tactical engagement at the kind of scale we're talking about for most of the American Revolutionary War outside of the one or two big sort of set PC battles, the, there's a choice of general fire, which is you can either fire on the down roll or the up roll because your ship is always going to be rolling um, in, in the waves. If you fire as your ship rolls downwards, most of your shots are going to hit the enemy's hull. If you fire on the up roll, most of your shots are probably going to hit the enemy's rigging and masts. And if, you, if, if you're taking out the enemy's rigging and masts, you cripple their ability to maneuver and to sail, but you're not really affecting their fighting capability all that much until you completely cripple them. So they can keep shooting back at you. Conversely, if you shoot at the hull, you, that's when you're killing crew. You're dismounting guns. You're reducing its, uh, you're reducing the ship's ability to fight back against you, which allows you to think about then closing for boarding action. So it's a much more aggressive posture. But of course, because you're mostly leaving their masts and spars intact, that ship is, if it's in the right position, free to disengage at will, and if, it, if you're really battering one side, it can also try and turn around and present its undamaged broadside and keep fighting, so it still has its maneuverability. Mm. Depending on the crew, depending on the ship, depending on the matchup would dictate whether or not you try and 
fight or or retreat but if both sides are determined to fight or perhaps one is determined to fight and the other side can't escape for whatever reason um they're actually fairly brutal affairs because everything's aimed by human eye and there is a bit of a delay not a tremendous amount but there still is some so accuracy at long range is not really a thing a cannon can in certain circumstances shoot out to a mile some even out to three miles but the chances of you hitting anything at those ranges are pretty much slim to none so the ranges close in pretty pretty quickly and you end up with especially at frigate scale with these kind of swirling almost seaborne dog fights where each side is trying to get the advantage because the one thing you want to do in this kind of fight is to get what's called a raking position which is where um, if you effectively imagine a capital T, you want to achieve that kind of shape where your ship is broadside on to the enemy's bow or stern. Right. Because then you can shoot your entire broadside at them. They've got maybe a two or three chase guns or stern guns. Their firepower in return is basically negligible. And ships at the time, they're built with heavy hull sides obviously depending on on the size of ship will depend how thick they are but they're designed to resist damage from broadsides they're not really designed to resist damage from the ends and if you get this raking broadside in not only is things like the stern galley windows not really that resistive to cannon fire right. but the cannon balls will or grape shot will then travel down the length of the ship which will cause far more damage far more casualties to the enemy than a broadside where it just goes in one side and possibly out the other um will do and because you bear in mind if you, even with a 12 pounder cannonball you shoot that at 100 yards it doesn't matter if it takes a man out that's barely going to affect its speed it will keep going until it's taken out two or three men or hit something particularly solid like a gun yeah are they going um, straight through the ship i mean are, are these is the weaponry at this period of time yeah does it explode or is it uh, good question are, are the projectiles <laughs> explosive and also are is are they moving at enough uh velocity with enough force to to just completely penetrate a wooden vessel like yeah that. so so the the browns at this point don't explode they're solid iron shot um they come in various forms the obviously the cat the solid iron cannonball is the, is the staple but you've got Classic. things like grape shot for taking out anti-personnel uh for anti-personnel uses you've got bar shot and chain shot which are designed to take out spars uh sails masts etc um and yeah when in terms of penetration it depends on the gun the range and the ship it's being shot at so a relatively lightly built sixth rate if you're shooting at it with what for that kind of engagement is probably a relatively heavy gun like an 18 pounder at close range that'll probably punch a hole straight through one side and out the other mm. Uh, if you're shooting with a nine pounder or a 12 pounder it'll probably go through one side maybe not out of the other but obviously as ships get larger the hull the sides of their hulls are made thicker to withstand to a certain degree incoming fire so if uh, if you're talking about a ship of the line for example where the, the the sides might be three feet thick then yeah sort of a, a 12 or 18 pounder shot against a ship of the line is probably not going to overly worry anybody but conversely, if that thing fires a thirty-two pounder shot back at you, you're going to be looking looking at a hole straight through your ship. <laughs> yeah, so that's worrisome. I, I want to I want to know more about this ship of the line. The, I, and I've seen this. You've seen this painting, right? It'll be it'll mm -hmm. be uh, from, you know, from above. 
and you're looking at this line of ships on either side, squaring off basically broadside to broadside in fairly close proximity. Um, mm-hmm. I, tell us about that tactic. I understand that tactically what you want to do is have your broadside to the bow or to the stern of the yeah. opponent ship, but this side-by-side business just seems brutal. I mean, what are, they, are, are they typically sailing in opposite directions? or t- t- Can you describe what tactically was the best yeah. way to do that? It depends on how the two fleets have met, to be honest. In some cases, you do end up with them sort of going in opposite directions, but that's not so common. Generally, what people want to do, at least if they're the aggressor, if they're the aggressor in a particular battle, is they want to be going in the same direction and in a side-by-side form. And ideally, what you want is to be on the weather side of the line, i.e. you have the advantage of the wind. Um, because if the wind is blowing past you towards the enemy, if they break off and run, you can chase them. And if you, the battle's going badly for you, you can sort of stay where you are and then gradually to back, beat back into the wind. Whereas if you're on the lee side of the engagement with the wind coming through your opponent's fleet, as I say, you, if you run away, they can chase you. But if you turn towards them to try and close them down, if you're winning, you're trying to sail into the wind which really isn't going to happen mm-hmm. um, but the, the reason for the whole broadside engagement actually de- goes back to about 100 150 years before the revolutionary war so around the time of the spanish armada ships are a lot more boxy um, their length to beam ratio is much less and they have guns kind of evenly distributed for aft port and starboard and they kind of do this carousel thing for a lot of their fights where they'll sail towards an enemy, they'll discharge their forward guns, they'll turn port or starboard, they'll discharge the relevant broadside, and they'll keep turning, fire the stern guns, keep turning again, fire the other broadside, and then hopefully by that point the forward guns have reloaded and they'll repeat the tactic over and over and keep trying to keep this bombardment going. Wow. That works to a certain extent but that's very much still an era of where you use your guns to just try and soften them up for boarding how interesting what hap- yeah and what, what happens as naval tactics develop is people realize if you make a ship longer you can fit more guns on the side which gives you a more devastating single broadside but as your length to beam ratio increases the ship becomes less maneuverable and of course there's proportionally a lot less bow and stern area, so you can't fit as many guns on your bow and stern. And that makes you vulnerable to raking, as we discussed earlier. So when it comes to battles, obviously you want the biggest ship with the most guns, but it's vulnerable to to being raked. So you end up saying, right, okay, well, we'll put another ship in front of it. So the two ships are protecting the, the second ship's bow, the first ship's stern. And you kind of extend this principle and then all of a sudden you have a line of ships where the only ships that are vulnerable to raking in theory are is the one at the very back and the one at the very front. And you have this massive wall of guns. So that's, that's your line of battle. Obviously, anyone who tries the old tactics with lesser firepower is going to get blown out of the water, so they have to match you. <laughs> um, and yeah, the idea for most of the age of sail is you kind of sit in these lines you fire away at each other as hard as you can and you just hope that you your reload and accuracy is better than the other guys because then you 
kill enough people, knock down enough masts, dismount enough guns, and eventually the other side will give up because wooden ships are actually remarkably difficult to sink. And when they give up, they fly their, their white flag, they lower their colours, you send over a boat, which is a bit of a weird thing you might think now, but in the middle of a battle, you'd have little rowboats scuttling back and forth, accepting surrenders and such like. And who basically, whoever you is love the, the least British, right? at the I mean, end this, of the, the battle wins. This, you got to be a gentleman. You may be trying to kill each other, but we're going to do it with a little bit of class. Row yes, over there exactly. and look the man in the eye and say you're sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, and um, fr frigates, frigate actions are a lot more as a lot more agile a lot more maneuverable but the same principles still apply ideally if you can you would want to try and board the enemy this is harder in a fleet action because obviously it makes you vulnerable to being counterboarded by large numbers of the enemy fleet but in a, a frigate action you definitely would try to board because it's actually believe it or not although you're going down to melee and pistol fighting it's actually less uh, casualty generating huh. because then the big then fire in the big gun. Wait, let me. Yeah. You, you said a term I'm very interested in: mm -hmm. melee fighting. What is melee? Yes, a, a pistol. I get. What does melee so, fighting refer to? So melee. This this is literally boarding pikes, cutlasses, um, stabbing, basically stabbing, hacking, um, <laughs> axes. Yeah, you, you you'd be trying to cut the ship up as much as the crew. The melee. To be honest, because you would be trying to cut away, <clears throat> cut away rigging. Yeah that hadn't been severed um you wouldn't really try and chop down a mast in the middle of a hand-to-hand -hand fight because that would take far too long um but you might also try and cut down the enemy's colors because uh. if you can cut down the, the the accepted signal to surrender is to lower your colors because you're not necessarily going to be carrying a, a flag a white flag on board right um so you'd lower your colors so if in the middle of a hand-to-hand -hand combat in a boarding action somebody can run up to the wherever the flag happens to be usually on the stern and cut the colors down even if it's not a deliberate, intentional act by the, the crew of the ship that you're boarding, the rest of the crew are going to see that the colours are down. They don't necessarily know what's going on 60 feet away at the other end of the ship. All they can see is the colours are down. If the colours are down, that means surrender, so they might give up, and then it kind of becomes fait accompli, because if half the crew has given up, by the time any of them realise that oh, actually, we didn't mean to do that. <laughs> you've got their weapons it's, it's and fake you've news. got them at sword point, so they might as well give up at that point. It's it's uh, it's fake news uh, in the age yeah. of sale. Now, uh, let's let's proceed. I want to move mm -hmm. forward a little bit in time. What, so we, we start off, obviously, we know the story of... Uh, it is we're celebrating Independence Day this week, yeah. so that means we know what happened here, but... What take us through time? Like, what's the next kind of inflection point for the U.S. Navy in terms of its evolution and development? Right. So immediately after the uh, immediately after independence is achieved, the Continental Navy experiences something that the U.S. Navy would become all too familiar with for the better part of about the next hundred and fifty years, which is the minute the fighting stops, Congress effectively gives them a dime and nickel and tells them to take a hike so what ships are left are mostly sold off um they were actually in the process of building the first ship of the line for the continental navy the the america um unfortunately due to various uh, delays it's not actually launched until 1782 at which point 
with the uh, with Congress having cut the budget so severely, they realise they don't actually have the men or the finances to actually run the ship and so they quietly give it to france as kind of a, a thank you for helping us win independence well we didn't um, we and, didn't believe in standing armies back then or standing no. navies really yeah and this is this is why the continental navy is the as i say the precursor in continuity mm -hmm. to the u.s navy because with the sale of the america and the last few uh ships of the Continental Navy, it pretty much ceases to be because wow. uh, there's a run of presidents in the late 1700s and early 1800s who basically don't believe in the Navy. They believe, as you said, that militias are everything. And they have this slightly odd idea that literally men in large rowboats with a big cannon strapped to it and the odd merchant ship that's been grabbed and had a few more guns stuck on it will somehow suffice. Really? For U.S. Naval you're, security. you're not exaggerating. That was nope. actually the the position of our early leaders uh, about the yeah. wow. Yeah, a couple, for a couple of presidents running, naval militias are basically held to be the thing that is necessary, and the expense of running an actual ocean-going navy is seen as a complete waste of time. Got it. This actually leads to a rather interesting point, which is that. Over in the Mediterranean, you have the Barbary Pirates on the uh, western part of the North African coast. And they've been there forever and a day. Uh, they've been there since pretty much the fall of Carthage. Um, <laughs> but they make now, I think it's sort of the 1700s, 18, early 1800s, they make their living from piracy. Uh, they, they take enemy ships well, anyone's ships, really, that they, they think they can get away with. They steal the cargoes, they hold ships for ransom, they enslave the crews. Um, they get everything possible out of their trade. Now, they know full well that if they push their luck by going after British ships or French ships or Spanish ships, there's going to be a very large, very angry fleet off their coast very quickly, um, and they can't stand up to that kind of force. So they mostly don't um but they realize that the growing nation of america at this point actually has quite the merchant marine america's actually quite a favored uh, trading nation at this point on the high seas and they look at them and go we've never seen an american warship i wonder what happens if we take some of their merchant ships I and think the they would call that uh, low-hanging fruit, easy yeah. pickings. Uh, we were, okay, I do remember this part of American history, and I can't remember the president who decides that they've had enough of that, but keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so, so you end up in the situation where American merchants are being picked off very easily because they're just after coming through the Straits of Gibraltar. There's not really anywhere to run and hide. Um, and this is really badly affecting American commercial interests. So you end up in this very odd position of America is now paying tribute to the Barbary pirates in order for them not to attack American merchant ships. Ransom. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's basically they each year they send over a bunch of money, which is basically here. We're giving you this money instead of you attacking our ships, albeit that doesn't entirely stop the attacks. It just lessens them significantly. Uh, the, now, what happens then is that once I believe it's uh, I believe it's Jackson is the last of the I want naval militias presidents. Once he's out in the early 1800s, America stops paying the tribute. 
And as soon as they stop paying the tribute, the attacks resume, except that now the new president is somewhat more in favor of a navy. And the Barbary pirates suddenly discover after a year or so of resumed attacks that a new force has been built. Um, so these would be this is now the establishment of the United States Navy. Got it. And the US Navy shows up off of the coast and it starts with some very nice frigates and then they start shooting things and burning things and taking over things and that's where the US Marines get uh, to the shores of Tripoli from. Ah, you know, I, I, I have to say I feel embarrassed as an American <laughs> that I'm, I'm, I'm here on the 4th of July for we are, You are atoning for it with this show. And we're talking to... Uh, <laughs> An Englishman who's explaining the American history to me. You know, I got to say. It's glorious. Uh, it is glorious. I was, I'm, but I, I think the, I didn't realize that was the origin of the naval uh, hymn, the shores from mm -hmm. the halls of Montezuma to, Montezuma to the, the shores of to, Tripoli. To be clear, that yeah. is not the naval hymn, but. The Marine Corps mm -hmm. hymn. It's yeah. the song. It's, you know, the, the, the hymn is the. Are you know the, it's a different song. It's, it's, yeah, the, well, I think it's, the, it's, it's the not Marine called Corps. the hymn. Well, it's not. You mean the hymn is not the right word? Yes, I don't it's know the they, it's the Marine Corps song or whatever. The okay. march, yeah. march. Okay, the march. Yeah. So, so this this is this is now sort of the U.S. Navy proper has has been formed, um, and now American shipping can mostly go around unmolested because the Barbary pirates are now realize that annoying America has just as much of a dramatic impact as poking France. Drake, Spain, real quickly here, UK. is this the emergence of the USS Constitution or is that later? This is where the six frigates come from. Okay. This this is the foundation of... And the Constitution the, 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 was one of those six that yes. Congress funded yeah. of this class of ship. Uh, yes, and we have one. We have one. We have the Constitution still today. I think in Boston. Yes, yeah. So, the, and, and the reasoning behind why I say they're very nice frigates is because the U.S. Navy knows full well that despite Congress authorizing some money to go and set fire to the Barbary Coast, they are not authorizing enough money to build or maintain a ship of the line. And they basically take this view that, okay, so we can only have frigates, but if we can only have frigates and we can only have relatively few frigates, there's no point in spending fractionally less of our budget in building a standard 28, 32, 36 gunner frigate. Because all that means is that we have one squadron of frigates in a world where most of the big naval powers will throw squadrons of frigates around like their party favors. So they decide they're going to go a little bit bigger, a little bit better, because overall the cost increase is not that much, but you suddenly end up with a ship that ostensibly on paper is a frigate, but it, it really hybridizes in a lot of ways between some of the the structural design characteristics of a frigate and some of those of a ship of the line. Hmm. So... Wow. In, in part, they're helped by the fact that America has lots of access to white oak and live oak, which are incredibly tough. Um, but they also, when they build, it, build the frames of the ships, on a frigate, your frames are fairly spaced to make the ship lighter and therefore faster. On a ship of the line, which is going to have to stand up to a battering, the frames are a lot closer together 
uh, to, to make the ship stronger. So with the Constitution and the President and the other other of, of the six frigates like the Chesapeake, the frames are built more along the lines of the ship of the line. With, they're much closer together. Um, and the whole pl planking is, I say, um, white oak and live oak mix. And this is quite tough. They make the hulls a little bit thicker than than the average frigate there it's a commonly said trope that they're built like ships of the line they're not quite they're built with elements inspired by ships of the line but they don't have three foot thick sides and like a, a proper ship of the line would but they're still more than a match for in toughness compared to the average Wait, frigate. let me let me catch that fact a mm. ship of the line design in this period three mm -hmm. foot thick sides is what was the, the design yes. to withstand good grief of lumber yeah, in, of, of of wood yes of course of wood of, yeah oh. so you, you'd have your outer layer of planking um which and obviously the frames and you what you would find is one that plank would be very thick and on the biggest toughest ships where you got this three foot thickness of small ones obviously slightly Crazy. thinner um they would then pack in either additional layers of planking or just random assortments of 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 wood in some manner to, to provide yeah. these thick armoring works yeah, it's, it's so, armor. It's just organic. <laughs> yeah, yeah for sure. Effectively, yeah. what I'm interested, you know, I, I'm, thank you for telling the story of Cornwallis at Yorktown and the intervention of the the uh, French Navy uh, to mm -hmm. prevent the resupply, which was the critical battle led to the surrender at Yorktown. Um, mm -hmm. But I've got to think, you know, you were talking about the British Navy in this late uh, 1700s period, having been mm -hmm. at war with the Spanish, the Dutch, and the French for extended period of time. Um, it's an island nation. And I've got to think, and I'd like to ask you about, mm -hmm. the, about the technological advancements of the, of the British ship designers, because you would think in a highly competitive, life and death, mm -hmm. ongoing struggle, that the best naval designs were, were you know, obviously every country is putting their maximum effort into their naval power um mm -hmm. can you talk about the and just generally the the british naval design uh schools and the, the thought and the advancements that are attributable to the british navy not just during the civil war i mean civil war the revolutionary war mm -hmm. but leading up, up to world war one and world war two i mean the british yeah. navy the royal navy considered the greatest navy i think certainly during these or 1800s was considered the greatest navy yeah so te technological advancements they come in waves a lot of the time it's the royal navy that's leading them in later on when we get sort of the american civil war period the the lead on technology shifts a little bit um but we'll, we'll come to that in a, in, a, in a section once we've talked about the age of sail when you're talking about most of the age of sail up to about the 1820s the main limitation on ship size is the fact that wood is very flexible compared to something like steel or iron and you can't build a wooden ship that's designed to go at any particular speed much beyond a certain size before it starts to work itself apart so you kind of you have this upper limit You've also got certain characteristics that are lay within that. So Royal Navy ships at the time, weirdly enough, you might think at the start, tend to be 
slightly smaller than some of their direct counterparts. When it comes to frigates, that's because the Royal Navy, well, the British have this empire that they're growing. They need ships everywhere. They only have a limited amount of money, and so it makes sense to build more slightly smaller ships than a few big ships like the US Navy is doing. And that means you can actually have ships pretty much all over the place and in numbers, which which helps. And then you rely on well-trained, well-drilled crews to make up for the difference in gunpowder and such like. When it comes to the larger ships, again, they tend the British ships tend to be slightly smaller because a slightly shorter, slightly stockier ship a can turn a little bit quicker it's a bit more agile which is obviously important in a fight but b by being this slightly more more solid vessel they can stay at sea for very long periods of time and this is vital for long distance naval warfare and for blockade duty which are and the two things is, that the royal navy is mostly doing and they can stay at sea longer because there is less demand because the crews are smaller um Nah, the cruiser, it's not so much the cruiser, it's more the ship itself. Because the French ships, um, especially the French ships, they're often, people often look at them very enviously because they're fast. They're big, they're fast, they're usually in they're third rate, they're usually 80 gunners as opposed to the British 74s because they've got that extra length of hull they can fit a few more guns on. The problem is that, that they have is their length to beam ratio is a bit is a bit greater, which means that obviously that they're faster vessels, but they work as uh, because they're wooden ships. They work themselves a lot more in the waves and in the in the wind, which means you'll start to open up seams. You'll st the mast will start to become less stable. You'll get more water ingress. And I mean, any any wooden warship is is basically working itself apart in the seas. But a, a longer ship will do that quicker, um, right. and so. For navies that don't tend to go out quite as much, especially once you're into the sort of the late 1700s, early 1800s with Napoleonic France, the sh their ships they can afford to go for the speed because their ships kind of they're going to go out, they're going to do a mission, they're going to come back, and then they can get repaired. Whereas the Royal Navy ships they're going to go out and they're possibly going to be out at sea for years at a time. They can't afford to work themselves apart um, like that, so they they have to be this slightly shorter stockier type of, of vessel the extra agility is obviously a bonus in an actual gunfight but it does mean when french ships get captured which happens with uh, quite a bit of regularity once you're talking about the 1800s you find the bigger ships that they capture 80 gun third rates they're very popular as flagships because they have space they have um more comfortable speed yeah they're more comfortable to be in but the Royal Navy in general doesn't actually like using them that much because the speed is useful in kind of, if you like, almost point defense. Right. But they just can't stay out at sea as long as as the, the smaller British ships. Um, and so you, you end up, they end up having relatively short service lives for most of the time in the Royal Navy because they either get worked, they either get worked out and, um, and start leaking and have to be oh. uh, basically scrapped. So, so British naval yeah. design, uh, as you would imagine, is driven uh, very much by the particular circumstances that the Navy was facing. Uh, it's a yes. worldwide empire at this point. They've got a 
they've got to put naval power all over the globe. So duration becomes a big design factor. Yes, exactly. Okay, gotcha. And the, the, the other techno big technological advancement the Royal Navy has um, at the time is related to industry because you have the seeds of the Industrial Revolution starting. So two of the early products of that is one is the carronade. And the carronade is basically a short, a very short version of a cannon. And because it's shorter and lighter weight, that means the 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 bore, the, uh, sort of the caliber of the projectile can be larger it's nowhere near as long range you can't fight a long range gunfight with a carronade they're effectively like the shotguns of the of the naval world but because you can have this much heavier uh round in them at short range they can massively increase the firepower of a ship and since most battles off end up being fought at short range they're they're a big force multiplier for the royal navy the french take quite a while to catch on to this um the americans not quite not so much the american frigates being bigger anyway than average they have uh, more a bit more space on them and so you see a lot of carronades uh, eventually working their way into america's frigates which gives them an absolutely ridiculous amount of close range firepower for a frigate is when especially when you add on to the fact that they've already they've already armed with fairly heavy cannon and there's quite a few of them one of the um, things I love about uh, your videos, Drach, on YouTube mm -hmm. is that I, you see as, you know, some of these ships that you, that you'll, vessels, you know, warships that you'll mm -hmm. do a, a full video on will be in service for decades. And they, they do transform like, oh, okay, we're going to put more guns on deck. We're going to add more anti-aircraft guns. I don't want to get ahead here because mm -hmm. you mentioned industrialization and yeah. the impact that it had on the Navy. And I... I want to talk about that a little bit because I I think that all of our audience has probably experienced if you go to a, a revolutionary war battlefield or something mm -hmm. of the like you'll see a cannon that is uh, muzzle loaded it just it looks like it's older it, it's yeah. it's not as industrially produced by the time of the American uh, Civil War in 1860 uh, you've got breech loading uh, cannon uh, rifled barrels more advanced explosives i mean factories are turning this stuff out and you have steel i mean I, I i believe we have steel and we have paddle wheels and we have railroads and all sorts of new technology that was and you look at the photographs of this period and it's like this weird time of paddle wheels and mm -hmm. take us through this 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 really interesting time of of changing technology with industrialization Okay, so with industrialization, you, you get a few full starts because you get iron, iron working becomes a lot more common. Um, and so of tying back into the US Navy, coming out of the War of 1812, which I guess we, we might have time to drop back to at some point later. But um, coming out of the War of 1812, the US Navy builds a bunch of actual proper full-on ships of the line, a very unique design style, and then promptly ends up mothballing them again because Congress cuts their funding again. Um, and then as you're coming through into the 1840s, you start to see the first iron-hulled ships. Now, these have rather curious features because one of the big things with wooden ships is that if a cannonball punches through the ship you end up with a big jagged hole and splinters of wood flying everywhere which is almost if not more lethal than the actual projectile itself mm -hmm. to the crew 
when they're first testing iron, it's thought that iron ships could actually be lighter than wooden ships, which seems paradoxical. But then you, you remember that we're talking about several feet thick on um, ships of the line. So there's a lot of wood, even though wood is, in, is less dense per, sort of per cubic foot than iron is. And when they initially test the iron, they think this is great because iron plating can resist lighter cannibals outright. And even if a cannibal punches through, it seems to leave just this neat hole. And this is much easier to patch and a lot less dangerous than wood. So no shrapnel so, created, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And then, so so the first iron ships get built, they head out, there's some trials, some tests, a little bit of uh, light combat, and all of a sudden everybody's complaining because the iron is shattering just as badly as the wood, um, except it's shattering over a wider area, which makes the hole even more dangerous. Iron, of course, doesn't float, so the ships are at more risk of sinking, and now there's big chunks of hot iron flying around the decks, which is again even worse than the wooden splinters and what's actually happened is something called a, um i get the terminology right i should do because i'm an engineer uh, is i believe it's a phase change oh. um and basically what this means is that with all iron and actually most metals they behave differently under different temperatures we all understand like if you drop something if you freeze something in liquid nitrogen it becomes really brittle and shatters right um but what a lot of people and what uh, the shipbuilders didn't realize at the time was that the iron that they were using had this had a shift point uh. um, in the sort of low tens of well uh, low tens of degrees Celsius. It's probably what forties or so Fahrenheit, thirties or forties um, in Fahrenheit. But what it meant was that when they put an iron plate up in the night on a nice summer's day where it's getting heated up by the sun, and they fired a cannonball at it, it was very um ductile very bendy so you've got this elastic nice yeah yeah once you put that in the freezing cold ocean waters and its temperature dropped 10 15 degrees and you put a cat same cannibal through it now behaved a little bit more like glass and would brittle. shatter brittle, yeah exactly brittle um and so this was kind of a full start for iron ships because everyone was sent back to the drawing board because that was a very bad outcome um you then have this competition for steam power Steam power is the next big thing because everyone can see the advantages of it for basically since the dawn of naval combat, it's been decided by the wind and an awful lot of ships have been wrecked because they're just being driven by the wind and they don't really have much choice but to go with it. Steam power allows you to fight the wind in rough weather. It allows you to act against the wind in combat and even for simple things like leaving harbour. Um, battles and wars have been lost because ships were stuck in harbour because the wind was blowing into the harbour instead of out and that allowed the enemy fleet to manoeuvre whilst your own fleet was stuck so steam is kind of th this this big thing um, which cuts out so many problems and you you start off seeing wooden steam powered vessels and there's a little bit of a, a fight over whether it should be paddle wheel or screw propellers that are the propulsion of the future paddle wheels have certain advantages in simplicity terms but for military vessels outside of tugboats and a few very early ships 
the screw propeller wins out very quickly because the screw propeller is underwater. It doesn't cut down on the number of guns you can fit on the broadside, and more crucially, it's not exposed. Um, there is a big concern, although, as it turns out, it may not be necessarily 100% as bad as they thought, but there's a big concern at the time that if you if you end up in a fight with it and you've got a paddle wheel propelled vessel the broadsides might disable or destroy that paddle wheel which then cripples your steam propulsion and leaves yeah, that makes dead sense as a cons when when does the exploding projectile enter the navy this is around about the same time as steam so the the explosive projectile the shell um is sort of the early part of the mid 18 hundreds so 1840s 1830s 1840s 1850s you start to see it come in and it does look very much initially a lot of them they look very much comically like the classic cartoon bomb you know kind of a big a big iron sphere with a fuse sticking out the top um i know they, what you're talking about <laughs> yeah yeah we've all seen wily e. coyote yeah. <laughs> yeah so he this is this is where the um that the naval shell comes out and this hat now has a sort of a galvanizing effect because up until now outside of red hot shot rounds have just been solid iron and even the red hot shot is is still solid iron it's just very very hot and easier to set things on fire with the shell is potentially a death knell for wooden warships they think because a wooden warship has rope, it's covered in tar and bitumen, it's got gunpowder on board. There's all sorts of, basically almost everything apart from the guns themselves is flammable. Yeah. And so the idea of being able to, someone being able to shoot an explosive device into your ship where it can then detonate, obviously doing a lot of damage in and of itself, but also setting fires, which is the number one enemy on a wooden warship. Hmm. Um, this is terrifying to a lot of people and they desperately want to avoid this there's a battle between russian and turkish forces and the russians have shell guns in their fleet and they utterly demolish the turkish fleet that they're facing now fair enough the the weight of shipping the russians brought down they would have won that battle quite decisively anyway but the fact that quite a lot of ships catch fire is seen as a product of the shell gun and it it kind of invigorates everyone to go right the, these are really important parts of our arsenal now that so naval turn, warfare has changed i mean just in what we just covered between yeah. steam and steam power exploding shells and the armor and having uh iron hulls i mean we're looking that just if you look ladies and gentlemen do yourselves a favor and go to this youtube channel and watch his stuff but also, just look at the pictures. Think about in your mind mm. the, the 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 paintings, as Peter said before, of like these ships of the line, wooden. By the time you're looking at Civil War stuff, it looks very different, and it's these technologies yeah. that we're seeing kind of in there. And it's and it's all happening in a very very short period of time. It's probably about twenty years. So in the late 1830s and into the 1840s, you could have dragged somebody from 200 years ago into that time pointed them at a, a flagship and they would have gone okay it's a bit bigger than it was before but i recognize this like you took drake or de reuter or or an admiral like that and put him in charge of a fleet of the 1830s 1840s they'd know exactly what to do everything would just be a slightly bigger scale 
but by the time you get to the 1850s 1860s it's it's all different um armor is beginning to come in you see it first in the crimean war between the russians and a combination of british french and ottoman forces and then you hit the american civil war and the american civil war pretty much encapsulates the big turning point because uh, you've got everybody at this point has screw propelled frigates a few screw propelled ships that line that kind of thing and the american civil war breaks out basically around about the same time that ironclads are first are being properly developed because this is the thing with the shell gun everyone's worried about being blown up and now the ability to roll thicker iron plating has has arrived the french start with the gloire which is the world's first iron clad ocean going warship and which is effectively it's a wooden warship that someone stuck a bunch of iron plates onto um and it, it, it's 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 good good for what it is um it makes the british panic a little bit and this is where we talk about technology because up until about the 1840s it's been the british who have largely been leading the technological innovation but now they're kind of settled into their position as as top dog other nations are very driven to try and catch up um, and come up with some kind of new technology right. to overtake them and redress the balance of power. So the French Napoleon is the bit first big screw-propelled ship of the line, for example. The Gloire is the first ironclad. Now, the British kind of, they're, at this point, they're following a, a little bit of a design trend, which is we'll test individual innovations and refine them and then when somebody forces our hand by putting something out in the field like Gloire, we'll take all these innovations and we'll put them together and build something bigger and better. But we won't do that until someone forces us to. It's a, hide, so very, it's a hidebound uh, uh, profession, really, naval uh, power. To, to a certain degree, to a certain degree, yes. I mean, there, there's there's factions in the Royal Navy who are very, very hidebound and very traditionalist. And there's other factions who are, they're quite, progressive but they have this idea of as i say of basically they realize there's a big enough traditionalist faction that they can't push every single innovation all the time for the entirety of the fleet especially because right. there's so many innovations at this point that a lot of them don't work out but with the launch of gloire you very rapidly get the building of hms warrior and hms warrior is a cut above gloire i mean it's iron hold it's larger it carries heavier guns it carries heavier armor it can steam further it can steam longer it can steam faster it, it's basically it's all these experimental technologies that the british have been working on all put together in one ship because they've had their hand forced by the building of gloire got it the americans at this point they are industrializing but they're still in this isolationist phase they don't have the world's biggest navy by a long shot but when the american civil war comes along all of a sudden there's money all over the place for the U well at this point now it's the union navy um and they really need to get out there and cut off the confederate lines of supply right so you start off with this kind of odd hybrid of union ships that have still thus have still survived because some of them got caught in um confederate ports some of them obviously a few of them went over to the confederacy outright and the capture of norfolk by the confederacy very early on leads to the burning of quite a few union ships to stop them falling into confederate hands wow well ladies and gentlemen he goes by 
Drac, I guess if I'm pronouncing it right, mm -hmm. and the YouTube channel that he runs and populates with incredible stories of naval history around the world from the ancient Greeks to the modern day is called Drachinifel, D-R-A-C-H-I-N-I-F-E-L. You absolutely have to check it out. Uh, what a great way to celebrate Independence Day. Thank you uh, so much for sharing your incredible knowledge and expertise. Uh, Welcome you, back anytime. Seriously. Yeah. Anytime you want to come <laughs> Tyler, on. Tyler, closing thoughts, Tyler. Only uh, happy 4th of July, everybody. Happy 4th of July week. Uh, I just would say again that this is the first of a two-parter. Uh, so be sure to check out the second part where we cover uh, everything from, uh, let's see, 1860 through basically World War II, ladies and gentlemen. It is a cool period of time. Lots of exciting technological evolution. Uh, so, you know, this, this show here was the Age of Sail. And coming up next, we're going to have basically the Age of Iron. And uh, it's very interesting. So uh, happy 4th of July, everybody. Have a great week. Uh, and on the 4th, enjoy part two.